What a great morning. It's good to be together. Quick show of hands. How many of you like superhero movies? See, that's why they're so popular, right? I mean, there's like a new one coming out every week, it seems like. They've earned billions upon billions of dollars for the industry, and they keep pushing them out, one right after the other. And, and I'm not complaining because I, too, like superhero movies. I'm a big fan. But have you ever stopped to wonder why they're so popular? What makes them so appealing to our culture, really to our world? If you look at the trends, what you'll find is a very strong correlation between instability in the world and the popularity of these movies. In fact, it might surprise you to know that Superman was released and became popular during the Great Depression. It, it seems like these movies kind of provide an escape for us when we live in such a, a troubling world. When we feel weak, we look for heroes that are strong. When we see so much wrong going on in the world, we look for heroes who make things right. We want to see good overcoming evil. But what we're really hoping for is something that only God can provide. It's just stirring that within us. If you look at the Bible, it's filled with heroes as well. But they're not so super most of the times. Just think about Solomon, okay? The wisest man to have ever lived in human history. And he made bad decisions. Think about Samson, one of the strongest men to live in human history. But he could not overcome his own personal weaknesses. Even as we've looked at the life of David, we've seen somebody who is a strong leader, who's bold in his convictions, and then at seasons, he compromises, and he doubts. Actually, I believe that one of the strongest evidences of the authenticity of the Bible is that its heroes have flaws. They're just men and women, just like you and I. In fact, it seems as if God purposefully uses those that are least likely to be the most prominent. As the scripture tells us, he uses the weak things of the world to, to shame the wise. He uses the feeble to reveal his strength. As we've been learning, man likes what looks good on the outside, and God looks on the inside, what he sees in our hearts. And I hope that we will see as we look at the story of the Bible that God is the ultimate hero. He's the only one who is true and faithful. Everything else is filled with flaws. But if we're honest with ourselves and we look at Scripture, we have to admit that even God sometimes is not quite what we expected Him to be. That's why the scripture tells us his ways are not as our ways. His thoughts not as our thoughts. The God of the Bible often goes against our human preferences. Which is why I'm convinced in my own heart that he would not be marketable in today's superhero genre. We would have never invented a God like the one we see in the Bible. The God of the Bible stands alone. That's why David says in 1 Chronicles, There is none like you, O Lord. There is no God beside you. 
as we look at our passage this morning, I hope that we come face to face with the God of the Bible. And I think we'll see that in some ways it's not what we expected. But I hope we see that in the end, he truly does stand alone. And that when we are drawn into these superhero fantasy worlds, what it's actually doing is stirring a spiritual hunger in our heart that only God can satisfy. So before we look at our scripture this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, your word this morning, we want to do so humbly. We want to be hungry. We want to really feast on the truth of your word so that it shapes how we live our lives. Father, if there are things that we think about you that are not true, would you set them right this morning? If there are things that we need to know about you, would you make those very real in our hearts this morning? Father, we want to encounter the living God, the one who stands alone. There is none like you. And so, Father, would you, in gracious mercy, help us see you afresh this morning for the glory and honor of your name. Amen. Well, last week we learned, despite all the sinful resistance to God's kingdom plan, that he made a way. God has been faithful to his promises, and David has now been anointed as king over all of Israel. But there's one particular stronghold that remains in the hands of the enemy. Just north of Hebron, where David initially established his rule over the house of Judah, if you'll remember. Just north of Hebron is a city that we are familiar with called Jerusalem. But at this time, Jerusalem was occupied by enemy territory. It was controlled by the Jebusites. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham first made the covenant promise, to, or God made the first covenant promise to Abraham, he told him about the promised land which Israel would occupy. And he said, you will go in and you will take over the lands that are occupied by the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites. But apparently the Jebusites have held a stronghold that has not been overcome by Israel there in Jerusalem. So David puts his men together and they go to Jerusalem to the city of the Jebusites. And in their efforts they conquer the Jebusites and they establish the stronghold of Zion, Jerusalem, as the capital city of Israel. It becomes known as the city of David. This is where David builds his palace and creates a, a fortress around what is now the capital city for Israel. And what's interesting, if you go to Israel today, they actually have the old city of David uh, marked off, and you can tour in that area, and they are excavating uh, much of the artifacts that date back to the time of David. It's right there in front of you. You can look at it. Some of the same houses and things that were, were built in that city at that time. In fact, let me kind of give you a little bit of a orientation to what we're talking about here. So the box up at the top uh, left for you, or no, right for you, is the Temple Mount. We're all familiar with the Temple Mount. If you go kind of to the south and east or west, you'll see this purple area marked off as the City of David. 
that's the area that David established when he came in and took over the control of that city from the Jebusites. If you were to go there today, this is what it looks like. So you can see the Temple Mount up there with the golden dome, the dome of the rock, and then the red area marks off what is the city of David. It's that original place that David established his kingdom, and it is completely fascinating. Because as you walk through the old city of David, you are walking past artifacts that date back to the time of David. It's just amazing. This is an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like during the time in which David lived. So God has established his kingdom in Jerusalem. David has now occupied the city. But there is something still very important that is missing. Let's look at that uh, scripture together and see what it is. 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you'll turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Ahio and, uh, was walking ahead of the ark. So the Ark of the Covenant has now been hidden away for some 100 years. It's an all but forgotten reality for the people of God, but not for David. His first order of business after securing the land was to rescue the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to its proper place in the capital city of Israel. Because, as we see in verse 2, it's identified as the, the Ark of the Covenant is where the, the presence of God is found. By taking this initiative, what David is doing here is he is submitting to the rule of God as he is establishing his rule as king over all of Israel. In fact, one of the attributes of the Ark of the Covenant is that it represents God's rule. You'll look in Scripture, and it's often identified as the footstool of God. Have you heard that term? When it's calling the Ark of the Covenant the footstool of God, it's using royal terms because always at the foot of the throne of the king was a footstool in which he placed his feet. And so when the, the writers are calling the Ark of the Covenant the footstool of God, they are thinking about this royal imagery. It's the place where God sits enthroned in heaven and the ark is his footstool on earth. Kind of like where the, the heavenly realm intersects with the earthly reality. The ark of the covenant represents the rule of God. But not only that, the ark of the covenant represents reconciliation with God's people. You remember when they offered that atoning sacrifice, the high priest would take the blood from that sacrifice. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that blood onto the Ark of the Covenant. 
It was a reminder that forgiveness is found in God alone and the promise of his provision. And so when David goes and rescues the ark and brings it back to the people of God, he is calling them to a place of repentance. He's calling them to a place of worship. By rescuing the ark, God is calling his people back to himself. You see, the Israelites were a people who were ultimately under God's rule, not David's. God's people were ultimately dependent upon God's provision, not David's. And it seems as David understands those truths. But there's one more important attribute about the Ark of the Covenant that I believe David understood as well. Because hidden inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the law given to Moses through God, by God, to help the people of God understand how to function, how to be separate and apart as a holy and chosen race. It was a divine revelation of their identity as a holy nation, a people set apart to fulfill God's kingdom purposes on earth. And so by rescuing the ark and bringing it into Jerusalem, David is reestablishing Israel's identity as God's chosen people. He's leading them to to repentance and, and reconciliation. He's submitting to God's sovereign rule as the ultimate king enthroned in heaven. And this is all very, very good. But something very bad is about to happen. Look at verse 5. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of the God and took hold of it. For the oxen nearly upset it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and the the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So here's one of those examples where the actions of God conflict with human expectations. It seems that this is an unfair judgment from somebody who is trying to do the right thing. See, the ark was being carried on a cart, which was being pulled by an ox. Apparently, that ox lost lost its footing, and it knocked the ark off balance. Seeing that, Uzzah, who was standing next to it, reached up to stabilize it. And when he touched it, he instantly died. Now, let me ask you, is that how you would have written the story if you wanted God to be the hero? It's not exactly what we would have expected. It, in some ways, conflicts with our human preferences, (laughs) It's puzzling because it doesn't seem fair. David's reaction would suggest that he feels the same way. 
If you look at verse 8, it says that David was angry because of the Lord's outburst. It goes on to say that David's anger turns to fear, and he basically says, we're done. We're not moving this ark any further. And he takes it and he puts it in Obed-Edom's house and says, I'm not going to do this anymore. Now, there's a very good reason, however, for what seems at face value to seem to appear so unjust. I want us to look at that together. So flip back to the left and go to Numbers chapter 4. So go past 1 Samuel, Judges, Joshua, Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 4. If you go to Leviticus, you've gone too far. Numbers chapter 4. We're going to go back and look at God's original instruction given to the people of God as it relates to the Ark of the Covenant. So read with me beginning in verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, This is the work of the descendants of Koath in the tent meeting concerning the most holy things, including the Ark of the Covenant. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons, so the priesthood, shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it, the Ark of the Covenant. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it, and that they shall spread it over with a cloth, and it, uh, a cloth of pure blue, and, and shall insert its poles. I'm going to pause there because what we see happening is that God is giving some very clear and specific instruction on how to move the ark when it's time for it to be transported. Remember, these instructions were given while Israel was in the wilderness. God was leading them by a cloud by day and, and a fire by night. And they were always on the move or frequently on the move. And so this was a repeated routine that the people of God would go through whenever they moved the Ark of the Covenant. We'll see here that God delegated the, the task exclusively to the descendants of Koath, a very specific people whose job and responsibility was to move the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark was to be moved, it was to be covered so that no one could see it and no one could touch it. Those rings were for poles that were to be put through those rings so that men would carry it with those poles on their shoulders. And God was very, very clear about what the consequences would be if those instructions weren't followed. Look over at verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and have all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after the sons of Koath shall come to carry them, so that they may not touch the holy objects and die. And die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry. God's not being unjust at all. In fact, he's been very, very gracious. He gave them very clear instructions about how they were to carry out the movement of the Ark of Covenant, which was holy in the sight of God's people, for their own protection. As David has learned, ignoring God's instruction can bring great harm even to God's people. David employed the wrong people who moved the cart in the wrong way. 
the, the ark in the wrong way because they put it on a cart. It was a direct violation to God's very specific instructions. And as a result of David's negligence, one of his most trusted men perished. David has just learned that God is both real and holy. He's not some warm and fuzzy friend in the sky. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The holiness of God should cause us to consider our choices in light of His Word. The holiness of God should cause us to consider our choices in light of His Word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, His instruction is there for a purpose. His instruction is there for our protection. And as David has learned, when we ignore God's Word, it can bring harm to our life. can't think but help when I think about this scene of thinking of the the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. We're all familiar with this. It's quoted often, but it's when Lucy asks about Aslan the lion, whom she's never met. And she asks, is he safe? Remember what what Mrs. Beaver said? Uh, No, he's not safe. But he is good. See, that's what David has just learned. God is not safe. But soon he will learn that God is good. The reason for his instruction is ultimately to bring blessing to our lives. His holiness is to be protected so that we can experience his goodness. Look at verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Now it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him in account of the, because of the ark of the covenant, ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. What happens at Obed-Edom's house proves God's true intent is to bless, not to destroy. David tried to do the right thing, but he did it in the wrong way. He was careless with God's holiness. But with this second attempt, we see that he used the right people who did it the right way. They were carrying it on their shoulders instead of placing it on a cart. They barely get started, and what does David do? He offers a sacrifice. He offers a sacrifice, in my mind, as a sacrifice of thanksgiving, the recognition of God's blessing upon them for following his instruction and seeing his goodness being displayed. It's as if God has given them approval, and, and David is giving thanks. His fear has turned into joy. And it's just the beginning. Look at verse 14. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And David, so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, shouting and the sound of the trumpet. 
Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out with the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered a burnt offering and a peace offering before the Lord. And when David had finished the offering, the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and to women, a cake of bread and of dates and of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed to his own house. This is a party. This is a celebration, including dancing. What's interesting to me as I, I think about this scene, this event, is that it stirs David's heart like nothing else has up to this point. I want you to think about it with me. After uh, Samuel anoints David as king, pretty big deal, wouldn't you say? What does David do? Goes back and continues being a shepherd. When David kills Goliath... <laughs> And they have victory over the Philistines. Pretty big deal, right? What does he do? Goes back to being a shepherd. You see, even after taking Jerusalem and establishing its kingdom, David's first order of business was to go get the ark. And there is not a time in the history of David that we've looked at so far that he has rejoiced like he has when the ark was in its place, as God had always intended it to be. His fear has truly turned to joy. God's presence was more important than power, than authority, than influence. Because in David's mind, those are all empty pursuits if he's not in the presence of God. I also want you to notice kind of the merger between the fear of the Lord and the joy of the Lord. I think a lot of times we hear those two things and they're mutually exclusive to one another. But in reality, they're highly dependent upon one another. The awe of God does not suppress joy. It enhances it. Let me explain it this way. Let's say you've never been to the Grand Canyon before. You've heard about it, you've read about it, you get all excited, you get some friends, y'all are going to go to the Grand Canyon, you've never been there before, and this is going to be incredible. But when you get to the Grand Canyon, you look and it's no deeper than an irrigation ditch. I mean, you can stand in it and look at them and touch them because it's nothing. How disappointing would that be, right? When you get there and have in your mind how incredible this is, and as it turns out, it's nothing. But if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, that's not your experience, is it? I mean, there's a part of you that takes your breath away. I mean, it is both fearful and awesome at the same time. When y'all went to Zion National Park, was it Angel's Landing? Is that the name of it? Same experience, I bet. You get to that place and you look out into the beauty of God's creation and you have both fear and awestruck joy at the same time. In fact, I bet the most common word that's spoken in those encounters is, wow, this is awesome. Well, the very thing, same thing should be true in our relationship with God. 
our joy should be enhanced as we stand in awe of God, our holy God. To me, that explains what we see happening in the life of David. It's so overwhelming <laughs> that it, he literally can't contain himself. He just has a dance because that's the only way he can express the joy that he feels in the awesomeness of God as he is present among his people. But unfortunately, that's not how everyone feels. Look at verse 20. So when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out and met David and said, How the king of Israel distinguishes himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, in the maids, and all the foolish ones, and shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over Israel, the people of God. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to that day, to the day of her death. See, Michael's a thief. Michael's a thief. She is trying to rob David's joy. She exaggerates her comments in an effort to humiliate her husband. She's basically saying, look, you're dancing naked with the servant girls. But throughout this section, I want you to notice how, how Michael is identified. Three times, it says the daughter of Saul. Not the husband of David, the daughter of Saul the daughter of Saul. It's the author's way of telling us who she is representing and with whom she's most connected. You see, Michael represents the reign of Saul, a lineage that was built on outward appearance. How was he chosen to be king? Why was Saul chosen to be king? Because he looked like a king. Everybody looked at Saul and said, got to be the king. Looks like a king. See, Michael is rebuking David because he doesn't look like a king. Like Saul, she believed David should be clothed in a royal robe. That when he walked down the street, everybody should bow in his presence. In Michael's opinion, it was unbecoming of a king to associate with the servants, much less to dance with them. You see, David responds by explaining to his wife that he wasn't trying to impress anyone. That he wasn't trying to look good in the eyes of people. No, he was rejoicing before the Lord. And if you want to know who he was dancing for, he was dancing to an audience of one. <laughs> he was rejoicing before God. And in fact, he was dancing among the servants because that's who he is. That's how David saw himself. He was much more Israel's servant than in his mind, Israel's king. In David's mind, it made absolutely no sense to celebrate God's presence among his people by separating himself from the very people he was called to serve. As we think about this scene in the life and story of David, in my mind, this is the climactic event. If you were to chart it out, this is the high point. This is the peak. 
is here that David seems to have the, the purest understanding of the presence of God. In this moment, there is no greater blessing than to see God's presence among God's people. David knew that Israel was ultimately not sustained by simply defeating their enemies. Instead, Israel flourished when they worshipped their God. And what's true for Israel is equally true for us in the church. Just as we see David leading Israel into God's presence and celebrating that presence through worship and praise, the church is called to celebrate God's presence through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because here's the key. Everything the ark stood for, Jesus Christ fulfilled. Every single thing the ark stood for, Jesus Christ fulfilled. Think about it. As we talked about it, the ark represents the rule of God among his people. Jesus established God's rule in the hearts of God's people. He conquered the enemy of sin through his sacrifice on the cross. His death gave us victory over sin's curse. The writer of Hebrews describes it this way. Just write this verse down and then listen. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. It says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time on which he would make the enemies a footstool under his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One sacrifice for all time for all who believe. When we hear that, there's only one right response. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. See, Jesus sits on his throne in heaven. He's our king. And he will make his enemies a footstool. They are a footstool in his feet. And we as a church are called to proclaim his victory to the world. We are his ambassadors, right? Ambassadors for Christ. Ministers of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter. 5 verse 18 says it this way now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their sins against them as he, as they as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Remember, the ark was covered with the atoning sacrifice at the altar. It's a visual reminder that those who repent, that, that truly turn to God for his promised provision, that they would be forgiven. Romans tells us that, that God passed over their sins in view of a promised Messiah. 
And when Jesus came, he was the atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. Not one to be repeated over and over again, but one sacrifice for all sins, for all time, for all who believe. That's awesome. God's rule, God's reconciliation, God's revelation. Remember, the ark contained the law of God. The Ten Commandments. And Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law. To what? To fulfill it. He did for us what we could have never done on our own. Jesus revealed the glory of God through his divine nature, having been tempted in all things and yet without sin. A perfect sacrifice for an imperfect people. Everything the ark stood for was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The rule, the reconciliation, and the revelation of God. That's awesome. See, our joy should be a testimony of God's presence in our life. We shouldn't be the hero. We should be the servant. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The mission of the church, listen to me, the mission of the church begins and ends with worship. What's true for David is true for you and I. So as we finish up this morning, I want to ask you to consider three questions this week. Please, do me a favor. (laughs) Write these questions down. And I want to encourage you to have conversations at the dinner table with your family and think about these questions. I want you to consider these questions in your small group. If you're having lunch with someone this week, pull out one of these questions and consider what it means. Here's number one. How does the fear of the Lord enhance your joy? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Think about that. How does the fear of the Lord enhance your joy? We just said this morning that those are not mutually exclusive from one another, that the one actually enhances the other. So what does that look like? Another way to say it is, how do the boundaries of God's word bring blessing to your life? And parents, you might be willing to share with your kids an example of a time when you went outside that boundary and experienced the consequences of not taking God's word seriously as you should. We've all got those stories, right? Maybe you need to share one of those. Maybe you need to share how in the midst of a difficulty, you were committed to being faithful to what God's word said, even when everything around you said, no, don't do it. And you saw that God was faithful in the midst of it. But it's a good question. How does the fear of the Lord enhance your joy? And here's a a help. Psalm 111. Okay? This is David's psalm that I think helps answer this question. So, As you consider the answer to that question for yourself, look at Psalm 111 and see how it might inform you as you consider your own answer. Second question. Number two, how does the enemy try to rob your joy? See, Michael tried to rob David's joy because he didn't look like a king. He wasn't meeting the expectations of what everybody expected on the outside. And listen to me, that's a prison. That's a prison when you're always trying to live up to the expectations of everyone around you. David had been set free from that prison. 
And he was rejoicing because he could be who God created him to be in the presence of God and among his people. He was dancing with the servants because that's who he saw himself to be, a servant of God. But how does the enemy try to rob your joy? Maybe it's isolation. Maybe it's suffering. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's fear. But consider how the enemy might rob your joy. Consider, if you would, as you think about that question, how you might be robbed by trying to be what everybody expects you to be instead of who God created you to be. And maybe you need to dance and set yourself free a little bit. Here's a psalm that you might consider when you answer that question. Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Another one of David's psalms that I think helps inform the answer to that question. Last question. What are some of the ways that you can share your joy? See, I think David was dancing among the servants because he wanted them to enter into the celebration of what it meant to be a people of God in the presence of God. He was sharing his joy. And there are very practical ways that you can do that. And you might write a note. You might go visit someone. I read a story this week of a, a single person who came over to help a young family. Um, actually, she was just coming over to uh, pick something up. But when she saw kind of what was going on, the next thing you know, she cleaned the house and fixed dinner for this family. And this mother, new mom, wrote and said what a blessing it was just to have her come into her home and share that joy with her family. So you might think about doing something along those lines this week in an effort to share your joy. Now, the first two questions I gave you a psalm, on this third one, here's what I urge you to do. Write a psalm. Write a psalm of thanksgiving. You've seen some good patterns from 111 and 33. Read two and write one. I have been given this exercise before in my life, and I have found it to be a tremendous blessing. To look at the pattern of what David does in Scripture and then go and do the same thing. Write out a psalm of thanksgiving. Let your heart sing. Let it dance. And then write out your words as a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord. Read two and write one. That's your goal this week, okay? Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the blessing of the promise that when your Spirit comes upon us, that we are indwelled by the very presence of God that you are with us, that you are for us, that you will never leave us, and you will never forsake us. Father, I think we get distracted by all the things around us in the world, and we lose that sense of awe and what we just said you made possible. It would be like going to the Grand Canyon and saying, nah, it's not that big of a deal. It is. <laughs> it's a big deal. And it should stir a sense of fear and joy that happens simultaneously so that our awe and respect for who you are and the holiness of what you've accomplished drives us to trust you and live within your boundaries knowing that you've got blessing built into them. So Father, may we marry these two realities together and live joyfully in the midst of them. And Father, if we are easily imprisoned by the opinions of other people, would you help us break free this week? Would you teach us to live not as what everybody expects us to be, 
but who you created us to be. And may that enhance our joy in ways that we never even thought possible. Father, may we share that joy too this week. I I just want to urge us, because of the Spirit of God at work within us, that one of the greatest testimonies that we have to the world around us is the joy of the Lord because of the blessing of God and His presence in our lives. So give us some creative ideas about how we can share that with each other this week and those around us. We pray this in your name. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. May we live accordingly this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.